You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. In November of 2016, Detroiters had two ballot measures competing for their votes. One was initiated by a group of community activists, a community benefits ordinance that would require developers who were seeking tax incentives for projects costing $15 million or more to negotiate those benefits with residents and sign a contract. The other proposal was championed by City Councilman Scott Benson. It was a watered-down alternative that would require developers who wanted tax incentives for $75 million or more to meet with a neighborhood advisory council prior to receiving approval for development. It does not require them to sign a contract with residents. That second proposal was passed, and it went into effect on January 1st, 2017. And since then, there have been six times the community benefits process has been utilized. In a few minutes, we're going to talk to a national expert who has written extensively about these types of community benefits agreements. But first, we want to hear from City Councilwoman Raquel Castaneda-Lopez. She favored Proposal A, the one that failed. She represents a district in southwest Detroit and downtown Detroit that sees lots of large-scale projects that impact residents, such as the Gordie Howe Bridge. She recently spoke with WGDET's Shelby Jopi about the first year under the Community Benefits Ordinance. Here's their conversation. What has been your overall impression so far of the process this past year? I mean, I think it's great that we have something that's uh, uh, that's a law on the books in the city of Detroit and very uh, proud that we're one of the first cities to do so. Um, with that said, I think there's uh, real limitations to the legislation and opportunities to improve that. Um, one of the biggest pieces being timing and sharing of information. So on the few that I've been able to work on, um, but feedback from other community folks, folks, is that it's kind of crammed still. It's really hard if you don't have background training or if you don't have uh, a neighborhood that has people who are readily available to participate or interested in participating, um, if you don't have the neighborhood capacity, so to speak, to engage in these negotiations processes. And so to have just, you know, four to six weeks, some of them have been uh, that short to kind of run through a community benefits process is a little bit disingenuous um, to true community engagement and having community-driven development. And so that that has been one of my disappointments with the process. The other disappointment um, is kind of the sharing of information. I know community groups have struggled at times to get all the necessary documents um, needed to really evaluate the pros and cons of a deal, and that has been frustrating as well. I again, I think the idea is great, and I think the will, the willingness to engage in this and to try it out and pilot it is great, um, and everyone should be commended. That said, I think we can definitely grow and improve and tweak the legislation to make it better. So, can you describe to me what these meetings have looked like? Like, how many residents have showed up? I, it's, it kind of depends on the project. I know when I first went to the Weigel introductory meeting, it was a packed house at the school. There's people. Um, who were very engaged and had tons of questions about what was going to be happening to this green space. And then, uh, which on the contrary to the Free Press building, um, there was maybe two residents that were in the audience and the rest were employees from the city or from Bedrock. So it's varied. And I think um, part of it depends on the neighborhoods where it's happening. Part of it depends on the type of outreach that was done. So it's 
it's been a hit or miss at times. So Proposal A, the impetus for this conversation, um, it has pretty strong ties to your district, or at least, um, you know, many of the advocates were using examples like the bridge um, and the arena to um, promote this idea for holding the community holding large businesses accountable when they want tax incentives or um, abatements. So um, with that in mind, does this process in your perspective effectively give a voice to the community um, and to their concerns? Um, no, unfortunately not. I think it gives a platform to start the conversations, but it, it uh, hasn't been used in a a very powerful way. Um, and I think that's partially because we're still figuring things out. Um, but again, given the limited amount of time that community folks have to engage and learn about a project, it's just not enough. It's just, it's it's not enough. And I think it's disingenuous to present it in a way that that is really about true community engagement when it's kind of crammed into six weeks. Unfortunately, that just doesn't work when you're organizing and working with groups. Um, and so that's been frustrating to kind of work through. Have any tangible changes come out of this um, process with any developments, anything that um, maybe the community has felt like they've walked away with um, that the developer has incorporated into their plans? Mm -hmm. um, I think if you look at, for example, although this wasn't an official community um it didn't follow the official community benefits process, but people look to and highlight the Pistons deal. Uh, they opted in to do it, but didn't comply with all of the components of the legislation. Um, but they did host community meetings. Uh, there was a document that was produced where some community folks supported, some community folks opposed. Um, so there were some, at least I think at a minimum, what's what's a benefit that's happened is that there's conversations and that the administration through the planning department and the developers are coming together to have a conversation. With Bedrock, um, given that they're, you know, $2.1 billion of um, the total, I think, $2.4 billion that it had to go through this process, um, what have you seen from them regarding their participation in this? I, I think they're open. I think... Um, they do a great job, you know, welcoming people to the meetings, feeding people when they come to the meetings, making sure people, you know, again, feel comfortable. What I give people credit for is their openness and willingness to have a conversation. That said, I think we're still missing the tangible, concrete outcomes that are really going to impact and improve quality of life um, and employ more Detroiters. And that's just not there as a concrete deliverable. It's it's kind of we promise, we uh, trust us, we're going to work on this with you. Um, but that hasn't translated into real jobs for Detroiters that are high paying um, nor to um, uh, just overall inc increase quality of life beyond the downtown neighborhood. What could be um, changes to the legislation that you would support? Sure. So in legislation specifically is one, um, allowing for a lot more time for residents to engage and to choose the members of their committee. And almost something that doesn't have to do with the legislation that i like to see the administration do and councils support on is, is doing trainings around civic engagement and around development and around community-driven community development so that people are prepared for when these projects come to their neighborhoods. Um, and it's not something that's new out of the blue and you have to kind of train people each time the project comes up. So um, that's that's kind of training that can happen now regardless of the legislation. But the legislation, uh, we fought for hard at the beginning uh, really to make them legally binding and to make them have teeth. And unfortunately, that's still something that's missing. So really looking at 
how do we change the legislation so that if a developer falls through, um, yeah, that there's there's actual consequences. And the other major component is that the threshold is still very high, 75 million. We know that the majority of projects coming into the city are still within the 15, 15 to 20 million dollar range. So there's a, a lot of projects that are being left out. And it doesn't mean that they would necessarily have to go through the same uh, elaborate uh, community benefits process. It's more that, again, bringing people to the table to have a conversation, even for those smaller projects, um, which I don't think is cumbersome. From what I've heard from developers is their frustration was we always get the community concerns and these things slapped on at the end after we've, you know, gotten our finances together, after we secure the real estate. Like if we knew in advance what the expectations were, we would be able to factor that in. Um, but there's this fear about engaging with the other, so to speak. Is there any concern that down the road, you know, now that developers have gone through this process, that if something goes wrong, they can say, you know, well, we already did, you know, our, our due diligence, um, that that might become an excuse or um, is that is that at all a concern? Yeah, I think, yes, it's a concern. I think we've seen it happen in the past. And I don't think that people have malintent. Um, unfortunately, I think sometimes the debate becomes, oh, developers are the evil money-grabbing people and community are just these crazy, angry folks that want everything. And that's really far from the truth. It's the community wants what's best for their neighborhoods and their families. And I think developers are also trying to act in people's best interests. I think it's just a lack of knowing how to and knowing how to talk to each other I think we are really in a key time in the city's history to not just kind of copy the same track record that other cities have gone, to have t kind of follow the path that other cities have taken to revitalize themselves, like Chicago or San Francisco or, or Brooklyn, which you can see are really very um, divided uh, uh, geographically, racially, in terms of class, and, and be very heavily gentrified. And I think we have the opportunity and the physical space to build an inclusive city where everyone, old-time Detroiters uh, especially, are welcomed and feel like they have a, a role. Okay, that was WDET's Shelby Jopi speaking with Councilwoman Raquel Castaneda-Lopez about the Community Benefits Ordinance. Coming up next, we're going to talk with a national expert about how community benefits agreements fare throughout the country. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are talking about community benefits agreements and ordinances a year after the city of Detroit adopted and put in place a community benefits ordinance that voters put into place in November of 2016. Uh, here to talk to us a little more about the concept of these agreements and how they work in some other places is Rebecca Karp. She's the principal at Karp Strategies Urban Planning Advisors, and she has written extensively about community benefits agreements. Rebecca, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Stephen. It's a really important topic and exciting that Detroit is moving forward with the ordinance and but as a city you're taking the time to reflect and and think about what it means. Yeah, it's a good time I think to, to, to sort of take a step back and think about what we've seen unfold in the last 12 months. Uh, so, so you propose a new process for managing these uh, negotiations in your MIT thesis. What would that process look like uh, this, this, this new approach to these things? <laughs> 
Sure. And I think, you know, to put that in the context, I know your listeners certainly, I think, are probably really well informed about the genesis of community benefits agreements. It's a hot topic in Detroit and certainly nationwide as, as we're thinking a lot about what does development look like, particularly in communities that perhaps haven't been as invested in and now are suddenly becoming hot market. What does it mean when we're talking about really large public subsidies? What does it mean to have a seat at the table? So you know, when, when I've taken a step back, both in my practice as an urban planner and then previously when I was at MIT and really studying these issues from an academic but also practical sense, you know, I really tried to look at it from a couple of different perspectives that I think are interlocking when I looked at a couple of CD, you know, CBAs, both nationally and then kind of a deep dive in New York City. And I think there are five or six interrelated components that are important to think about if we had a better process. Yeah, yeah. So I think, I think that those components include, you know, community inclusion, you know, on an ongoing way. So up front, if a city is developing an RFP or a visioning process about, like, say, a city-owned property or... In Detroit, for example, you know, if there's a community advisory board, what might that look like rather than having one meeting, but kind of in an ongoing way to consider community input. Yeah. Um, and with that, I think a closely related is a second idea around community representation. So thinking that representatives should come from many different types of community groups who have a demonstrated history and connection to a neighborhood. So if your working group is being convened by a city, I would argue it's their responsibility to conduct deep outreach to community groups um, and think about, you know, who gets a seat at the table, right? Because that's ultimately what we're talking about. I think another option with that could be bringing in a neutral third-party facilitator to conduct an assessment to think about, you know, who exists in the community. The councilman spoke about this capacity building, um, you know, need to take place to make sure groups can participate, again, to go toward representation and community inclusion. I think a third factor related to that is this idea around a community impact analysis. So often with big development projects, you'll hear the phrase EIS or EA, right? And so in city government and, you know, urban planners love to talk about environmental review processes and what the impact is to the environment. But I would also argue that these projects have impacts to communities because certainly that's why community stakeholders often organize and argue for a whole range of benefits around affordable housing or public health and jobs and, you know, all the things we really care about. But I think when we're thinking about how do we access that information, that kind of data that could be construed as more technical, it would be great if the, you know, developers, the city, community groups all had access to the same information so you could have a good baseline and a shared conversation uh, so I would argue a community impact analysis could be useful and bring everyone to the same playing field in a conversation. Yeah, yeah. So so talk about how some other cities approach this this question. I mean, uh, we, we jumped out a little on a limb here, I feel like, in Detroit with, with this ordinance uh, getting out ahead of of some other communities in, 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 in some terms, but, but I know other, other folks are looking at things like this. Give us some idea of where we fit in the, in the context there. Yeah, I will. And I think just if I might quickly, before I jump to that, there's just kind of one other component. I think I'd be remiss, you know, if I didn't, if I didn't address it, because I think it's something that listeners in Detroit will be really keyed into, especially because you're one year in, in Detroit. Right. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I think, so I think when I think about community benefits agreement you know, nationwide and in Detroit, I think this idea around 
structured implementation is really critical, right? Because that's the roadmap of thinking about how any benefits could be delivered. So I think a lot about like formal exactions, like are you going to be taking money and putting it into a pot, for example, that then will be dispersed according to what kind of benefits might be needed? You know, how are you taking accountability over that money? But this idea of a roadmap for implementation, right? And this idea that land use processes and development, it's a long road, right? It's a new project can take years or decades. We never want them to, but they often do. And so I also just remind us that, you know, Detroit is a year into the ordinance. So it's a great reflection point, but I would argue it's still a little bit, still a little young in the process. So when we, when we look at them across the country, you know, there's a whole range of, of models that people are, are trying, right? There are some that are more traditional CBAs where community groups are negotiating directly with developers. Um, and I think that's kind of where the whole concept originated. Uh-huh. There are other models where, you know, community groups are transitioning to negotiate directly with cities, where cities are coming in and saying, you know, we're going to get involved with the public project. There's a need for a public investment. There are other cases where cities are saying, you know what, we're hearing time and time again this demand around jobs. So what can we do to institutionalize something in the process? So actually here in New York City, um, the city of New York actually created the Hire NYC, which is a you know, public hiring program that gets instituted across you know, city-driven RFPs. That's right. provision for targeted hiring that goes into every development project. Um, so you know, it's different everywhere you go. And when you take a scan across the field, you see things like, you know, it's bubbling up, like, for example, in St. Louis, um, you know, not too far away from Detroit, where they're, you know, watching closely what's going on in Detroit and seeing, you know, should they model something that's more formalized? What would that look like? Yeah, yeah. Should they wait and see? Uh, you know, we've got about uh, two minutes left, but I but I want to get you to talk some about <clears throat> this, this relationship between communities and developers and other ways to deal with the imbalance. I mean, there's a natural imbalance there, uh, I think, uh, when, when you talk about development. Um, uh, are, are there other things or other ways that we might think of trying to, you know, bolster the community's voice and interest uh, in, in the way that these things happen? Yeah, I think this is the thing. I think a lot of is uncertainty in these kind of negotiations and agreements. It's uncertainty and fear as a healthcare not knowing what to expect. I think also uncertainty for community groups who are either looking to negotiate for benefits but don't know what the process will be, you know, and so, you know, or if their coalitions might change or whatnot. Um, so I think in terms of in terms of thinking through how community groups I mean, I'm, it, it's, a, it's a tough question, right, because yeah. imbalance is in the eye of the beholder. Sure. But I think in terms of access to a seat at the table and that kind of imbalance, because knowing a developer is going to be coming forward with a proposal that the city will be entertaining in most cases, I think addressing issues of representation, making sure that that's a fair process, that it's done with like a stand of the community and that those members who are selected to participate have the tools to do so, yeah. I think is the best way to ensure that communities can find their voice. 
Okay. All right. Rebecca Karp, principal at Karp Strategies Urban Planning Advisors, has written extensively about community benefits agreements. Thanks very much for being here on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. That's going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. See you tomorrow.